We're running on average of 40,250 sites. We found an average of 44,000 sites. That's an insane number. That's insane. So something is definitely off in this market. There's a big difference between the facade of the sales pitch and what actually goes on. It often reminds me of like, you know, the ending of Wizard of Oz, where there's just a guy behind the curtain pulling a lever, right? If the largest top 20, top 10 advertisers in the world, if they wanted open web programmatic trans supply chain transparency, if they really wanted it, they'd have it already. Hello and welcome to the AdPod. Today I'm joined by Tom Triscari and we'll be talking about the ANA Programmatic First Look Report which recently highlighted some of the challenges with the programmatic supply chain. There have been a number of reports from around the world highlighting these issues before but this recent report goes into the most depth and has measured the largest amount of ad spend and impressions. Tom was involved in the work and has amazing perspectives on the programmatic market from an economic and game theory perspective. And we talk about that and we talk about lots of the findings. This episode is super insightful and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please click like and subscribe. Anyway, all that leads me to say is I hope you enjoy this episode of The App Pod. Hey Tom, welcome to The App Pod. How's it going? Hey, Wayne. Good to see you again, as always. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. Good to have you on. Um, before we get into it, for those who don't know you, would you mind giving us a quick intro to your career and then what you do now? Yeah, sure. So I I started, well, my career went beyond programmatic, but I started in programmatic in 2008 when I joined Yahoo. They had just acquired Right Media I believe it was $680 million. And that was the first programmatic exchange created by, you know, Brian O'Kelly, who went on to AppNexus and now Scope 3. Uh, and so that team uh, in Barcelona, this was in Barcelona, it was a very big pan-European team that the office was growing and we inherited this thing. And then we ended up getting really good training in the very early days of, of, of programmatic. And then I went to Critio after they raised their Series C in 2012. And that was a very strategic place, you know, to learn a lot more about programmatic just because of the culture that Critio created around their business with very good technology in the retargeting space. Now it's a, it's a, it's a much different business with retail media and everything else they do, but very incredibly good management um, and a great place to learn programmatic. And then I consulted, did programmatic assessments for several, several large brands all around the world. I did those in the US. I did them in South America, Europe, and also two tours to China for two different clients to understand programmatic in China, which was totally fascinating and incredibly different to the to the to everything outside of China. And then more recently in 220, I wrote, um, I wrote a paper called Programmatic Lemon Market Game, where I leaned off of George Akerlof's 1970 paper to say, it looks, these this market has a lot of characteristics of a lemon market. I think we're going to get into some of those subjects around information asymmetry in this podcast. Um, and then that led me to create um, a kind of innovation firm. It's like a wide open canvas that I do various things. Um, it's called Lemonade Projects. And from that, I do some consulting work here and there. I work with, for example, the ANA on the transparency report. Um, I created a newsletter off of that called Quo Vadis, where I track an equal dollar portfolio of all these ad tech public companies. That's been a lot of fun. 
and now my newest project, which maybe we can get into a little bit at the end, is my this. I'm creating a musical called Programmatic the Musical. I'm doing that in Westport, Connecticut. I launched that last Monday when Can started. Uh, it actually launched last year at Can, like a soft kind of validation launch. But I'm making a musical about programmatic advertising and uh we want to get into that a little bit later we'll talk about it (laughs) this is what we've all been waiting for i'm looking forward we'll definitely get into that i think uh, (laughs) that sounds great um cool thanks for that and then for this season of the ad pod we want our listeners to get to know our guests a bit better and one way to do that is a classic tell us an interesting fact about yourself so it'd be great if you can share an interesting fact that maybe not everyone knows Okay. Um, well, besides that, both my grandmothers were born on Christmas Day in different years, which is weird. Uh, wow. What, so are the, I, what are the odds? The odds of that must what are be the, insane. What, it's incredible. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, after undergrad at UCLA, I moved to Europe. I ended up staying for five years. And so I learned, I was in Catalonia, which is where Barcelona is. I was outside of Barcelona up on the coast. And so I learned fluent Catalan, which has been a tremendous benefit considering years later, I went back to Barcelona when I was working at Yahoo, even though I didn't need to use it there, just socially, it was really great to have. Um, I also speak, I'm fluent in Spanish and I also have, um, I've done the diploma degree in Spanish and I also have the uh, test de connaissance de français and I also have the SILS exam that I passed, which is a certificazione d'italiano. So I did these when I was younger. These are like five hour exams or the official state exams. And what I would love to do someday, which I'm itching to do if I can find the time is I would love to go do like a programmatic podcast in, in Italy, in Spain, in France. But, 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 you know, with particular with Italy and France, I would like to go there for a week get do my crash course to get my French and Italian back up to where it needs to be. It's okay today. And then go do that with a French speaker who's also fluent in English and have some fun with it as well. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's something people probably wouldn't know. That's awesome. That's so good. I've always uh, have mad respect for people who can speak multiple languages because I can barely speak one. <laughs> but you have the accent which is polished <laughs> oh it depends okay <laughs> um cool obviously though we're today chatting about the recent ana report into the programmatic supply chain um just so everyone's clear who's listening um what is that ana programmatic report and why was it initiated yes so it all started actually after isba dropped their their report the famous you know unknown delta report in may of 220 i believe it was um the ana i think at the time thought wait a minute this stuff is still going on because they had they had run a wider kind of report or investigation into things like rebates that was in 216 uh and so that kind of was the spark to say all right well if that's a problem coming out of the uk it's probably also has to be a very large problem in the us and other markets the ANA, of course, representing American, you know, it's the American you know, Association of Advertisers. But um, so that's how it all started. And then I got involved in guiding and helping and advising the ANA, um, along with a gentleman in the UK named Nick Manning, who you probably know. Um, he was at Ubiquity for quite some time. He also was founded a media agency that was acquired by OMD quite year, so, so in a few years ago, several years ago. But uh, so he and I helped guide that 
RFP process. And then, you know, there were, I think, 28 submissions. And then you have to go through the motions and the, the phases of the RFP to select um, who's going to participate and run this project. And so that all happened starting in really the summer, the very beginning would have been the summer of 220. And then, um, and then it, it took a life on its own from there. Okay, cool. And then we'll link out in the show notes to the report, but would you mind talking through some of the, the high level findings? Like what did the report kind of say? Yeah. So the way that the, the whole project was going to be run from the very beginning off of log data, because ISBA had run log data in 220, 12% match rates, uh, very, you know, a lot of issues in the data, which they, they wrote about in the report, including data access. And then once you get the data, there's issues of matchability and then matching the data. It's hard to make rhyme or reasons of this stuff. And so I think like on the one hand, when you go to any ad tech company's website or hear them on stage at say programmatic IO or, you know, or, or whatever the conference is, right. Everything sounds great. Everything sounds like, wow, these are real rocket scientists. Well, if you tried to take a rocket to the moon or Mars doing the way that they actually do it, the way ad tech actually operates where nothing, it's hard to get matching. There's no consistency in the data. Um, the thing would blow up like right when it took off, right? It makes, so there's a big difference between the facade of the sales pitch and what actually goes on. It often reminds me of like, you know, the ending of Wizard of Oz where there's just a guy behind the curtain pulling a lever, right? <laughs> that's the, you know, um, so, you know, so that's quite interesting. But anyhow, um, with the log data, the 21 participants that ended up participating with live campaign log data, uh, which was both done by, um, uh, you know, Price Waterhouse and Tag Trustnet, where Tag Trustnet is a joint venture between Fiducia and Tag. Um, those those are where the data scientists sit. They they ran the data collection um, to get to you know the, one of the things you always want to get to is okay, can we get a better glimpse into the cost waterfall? Can we get more granularity into it? But where this report, this study, differentiated from past studies was it didn't stop at say working media up to the publisher, it went beyond that into, okay, great. Now you had a dollar, you paid these transaction fees to participate in programmatic media buying and some ads supposedly ended up on sites and apps. Well, what happened after that? What was the, you know, after you account for ad fraud, after you account for viewability, after you account for things like other things we found like MFA sites, what really is left over as useful ads to consumers? So that's where this report, differed quite a bit from the past, from the past reports. Um, as far as, you know, buckets of findings go, um, I think what everybody gravitated to in the first look report that which came out just last week at Cannes, um, finding that 15% of the spend studied in the report, which in total money going into a DSP was 123 million, 35 billion impressions. Uh, 15% on MFA sites and then asking other questions. Okay, great. Well, if that's the case, then let's go look back at the log data. Let's interrogate the log data and ask it another question, which is, well, were any MFA sites inside, say, programmatic, uh, sorry, uh, private marketplace deals? And of course, there was 14%. So this has raised new questions that we're going to get to in phase two. Another area that I think people gravitated to, which was not any different than what ISBA pointed out in, in 2020, 
which their advertiser participants were like, we're running on average of 40,250 sites. We found an average of 44,000 sites. That's an insane number. That's insane. So something is definitely off in this market. Um, hence why I originally wrote that paper programmatic lemon market game, because of the, it has these characteristics of perhaps a subject you might want to get into that we talked about, you know, earlier when we decided we were going to do this, I think, you know, Wayne around, around information asymmetry, right? Right, right. Um, before we do, just, just a couple of questions on that. So um, this time around, was access to the data as challenging as it was in the ISBA study? Like you said, it was 12% match rate. Um, did you have, was there much issue in getting the sort of measure all those impressions and collect all the logs? Um, I would say it was similar. I don't know how much you could really say um let's say that you were general eisenhower someone like that looking at this you would say there's been real come on guys there's 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 been no incremental change here let's be real right there's been some but when for example when some of the larger dsps don't participate in the study right yeah that that that's one thing um but it's, even sorry, so Tom, Tom, just just on that tom is that is that a red flag or do you think there's genuine reason for them not to? Well, I think that um, the, all of the DSPs, including the largest ones, Trade Desk, DB360, if you're an individual advertiser and, you, and you're a consultant, you've done these projects, right? If you want, if, for an individual advertiser who is implementing log data transparency or just log data for you know cost waterfall reports so they can see across their entire world at the campaign level, the brand level, the portfolio, the regional level, like what all their cost waterfalls might be, and then reuse that data and repurpose it for optimization. The, the, getting log data and access is actually, I think, a lot easier at the individual project, at the advertiser level. It's when you're running a study that I think for some reason, whatever they are, there's some pause for concern. Um, I think on that though, I think what needs to be noted uh, is if you are a history of, you know, uh, a history of economics, a history of industry, transparent markets are way bigger than non-transparent markets. They grow. And I think any hesitancy to participate in, in, in wanting to engage in a more transparent market, a more legitimate market, a market where there's more certainty, right? I'm, when I say certainty, I mean statistical certainty that what you're into is good. Like, what are you into and what are you in for? And when you have, when buyers have more statistical certainty about what they're doing versus the angst, the concern, the sort of unknowing, um, it gives everyone a little bit pause and they may shift spending to other things. Things can change in markets. And I think the best move for the entire market, if, if everything is great in this market, then be transparent about it and offer the data. Offer that fluency of data and 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 the velocity without friction to access, and also do your part, right? I mean, Trade Desk is doing, for example, they've got a, they've got an ID that for, that that can match everything through, through the supply chain. It's got to be implemented, though. Yeah, you know, if you just look at various things, like look at look at IAB standards around in-stream and outstream. Great, great standard makes total sense. It's got to be implemented by publishers. They don't implement it, right? So I guess all in all, though, advertisers, I mean, we showed in this first look report, the history of the reports that came before it. Yeah. If you haven't wised up by now, 
you know, and yeah. voted with your and voted with your media budgets to make a change. Let me put it to you this way. If the largest top 20, top 10 advertisers in the world, if they wanted open web programmatic trans supply chain transparency, if they really wanted it, they'd have it already. Yeah. So there's a disconnect there somewhere. A hundred percent. And I mean these, you know, the the 20 I think are listed in the report, big, big companies, you know, investing a significant amount of dollars. And you think, well, if they're meant to be the ones who have the biggest, the smartest agencies and third party suppliers. And if they don't have a handle on this, then what hope does <laughs> do others have? So and that was actually my next question was of these findings, you know, the fifteen percent into MFA, forty-four thousand sites run across, PMPs having MFA in it. I'm not sure and you know, might have to wait until the, the second version comes out, but how much of that is nefarious, like deliberate versus how much of it is just part of the system, not enough checks and balances in place. Oh yeah, that's interesting because I mean, I I I had a mentor um, at Yahoo and learned a lot from this person. And this person one day said we were walking down the street after lunch and said we were talking about another individual in the organization. And he said, "Look, you know, a lot of the times we." as humans some, for some reason will lean toward deceptiveness meaning oh there's something deceptive going on nefarious going on when really 90 percent of the time it's incompetence the sad thing about that um is that's a very very difficult uh sort of pickle or corner to be painted in because your options are are you incompetent or are you nefarious which one is it and that's sort of the lesser of two evils type of thing there incompetence is still better because you can you can learn not to be incompetent. You can change your ways. Um, whereas nefarious or underhanded behaviors are a whole different ball of wax. Now with that though, with that, I did point out in a, in a, in a panel discussion last week at Cannes, I talked about, and I think Digiday actually, Ronan Shields at Digiday I reported on this and quoted me, which was around this concept in game theory around a type of game where there's involuntary collusion. And it's a type of game where we all can see above the game and we're, we're, not, we're not in collusion at all. It's completely involuntary and disconnected, but we all know the rules of the game and we all know the moves the other players are kind of making. And we just need to play along with those moves because program, open web programmatic ultimately is a game or a system, a market where everyone gets paid on a percentage of media basis. And you have people say, no, 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 no. Some companies calls charge CPMs. Well, it's still effectively a percentage of media because you know the CPMs you're paying. And if you're paying a nickel for some service, you can just do the math. It's all percentage of media and volume matters. And so and look, I pointed out on uh, the other day on, on LinkedIn, um, can't remember who I was. Somebody posted something. Oh, it was Ian Whitaker, um, the the equity analyst, who's who's fantastic. And so think about it from the perspective. And I'm not picking on. I could I could name any company, but let's say, you know, I'm Procter and Gamble, right? The biggest advertiser in the world. Estimates would be if you take market comparables, they're probably spending close to 500 million a year on open web programmatic, right? Maybe not that much, 
but let's just go with the example. Um, and if they're getting 5% of working media at the very end, after you account for transaction costs and ad quality, right? That's $25 million of actual money that's going to ads that you would say that's decent advertising. And if you could get that up by making changes, if you could get that number up by being incredibly good at this and being um, not doing things incompetently, basically, and having curiosity and wanting to learn and putting in controls, it's not that hard. If you make the change, then you could get that up to 70%, right? Very easily. And that means, though, then, that if you do the math, that means that for instead of $500 million, for $35 million, you could get the same $25 million outcome. That's a huge amount of cash savings that would go back to shareholders or for some other purpose. That's the last thing the programmatic ecosystem needs is for someone to go do that because that's a big reduction in, in, in money flows in the system, right? But it's also probably um, for Procter & Gamble themselves, right? Because they use that number as leverage in their contracts with suppliers as well. So if, if they're spending less, they in theory, can get less on the dollar because they don't have as much commercial leverage. Yeah, they should be doing that. They should be. They should be using their, they should be voting with their dollars. I'm sure they do vote with their dollars in some ways. I just think they could very likely um, play a much stronger hand than they're playing if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, so just to your original question, it, it's, it's, there probably are some deceptive behaviors out there, no doubt. Um and the bottom line is it's like, you know, as an individual advertiser, if you have pride, if you, that's a big one, right? You got to have more pride for your work. You got to set higher standards, like the Jeff Bezos type of what are high standards, because they're certainly not existent in open web programmatic. The fact that everybody's yeah. operating off of MRC viewability standards, right? You know, I mentioned the other day to someone and it did, you know, it kind of rubbed them the wrong way maybe, but. I said, okay, so if you really believe that 50% pixels is, is, is really sufficient, then here's what I want you to go do. I want you to go to your living room and I want you to put a blanket over half your television and see how the experience is. This doesn't make any sense to a human being. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I, yeah, I definitely think there's a sense of a professional obligation to do your job in a way which is serves all stakeholders and that does start with the marketer. But the problem is the service industry tends to pander to the investors, which are the marketers. So uh, I'm hoping this report would also push back on some of the ways that th these big brands are spending, you know, like start leaning in. Um, that's my call to action anyway. Um, yeah, definitely. And look at Wayne. Wayne, if you go up to the a and had another study came out recently around like this. In, they do an in-housing survey, in, in, in survey every few years. And creative is, you know, the creative side of businesses, there's been a lot of in-housing on the creative side, right? On the media side, not so much. And the main reason I think pointed out in that report is media is so complex that it's like, you know, just let, you let a media agency go do it, right? That's probably the beginning of a lot of the problems, not because media agencies are doing anything wrong. It's because of the incentives that are pushed down to media agencies today which 100%. are now no longer agents. They are principal traders legally because go back two decades when they were making 15, 16% fees and everything was great and the work was great. 
um, things have changed quite a bit. When procurement came in after the Great, Rece uh, the Great Recession in 2008 and really pushed a agency fees very, very low, sub 5%, when at the same time programmatic kind of came about, right? There were new ways to make money so that the agencies could stay afloat and do what they needed to do. But the bottom line is, as pointed out in this first look report, is if you're going to use open web programmatic to buy cheap reach, which Chris Kane at Jounce has also pointed out at $1 CPMs, and at the same time, you need to have reports that says this money was useful, done, yeah. you know, used correctly, you have vanity KPI reports, that you're setting up for a market that will supply you all the crap that you want. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, exactly. part, that's part of the problem. Um, I'd like to move on to talk about information asymmetry. I know it's a key part to the report. Uh, do you mind explaining what it is? Like what is yeah. information asymmetry and how's that sort of uh, fit in with programmatic? Yeah, so information asymmetry is a concept from economics where the seller of a good has all the information about the quality of that good and the buyer doesn't have any or, or very little. And that puts the buyer in a position where it makes it very difficult to price it correctly. And the best example in, in sort of economic literature comes from the used car market, which is also known as, which is where the lemon market theory comes from, which is where you go to buy a used car and you don't know anything about this used car. You have no idea of its history and you could have several options of used cars. And so you, you don't know anything about them and therefore, what you're going to have to do in your mind is you're going to basically have to run some sort of expected value or best guess, and you're going to average the price down um, because you don't want to end up in a situation where you overpay because you know you don't know anything about it and you don't know what you're going to get. And then you could now flip that and you could say, all right, well, what if, what if I could get a Carfax report and I could get all the information of the history of the car from the VIN number, whether it had accidents or not? whether it had one owner or two owners before or three, whatever it might be. What if I could do that? And on top of it, what if I went to wh wh whoever the car dealer is, the, whatever the brand is, and they're saying, yeah, and also we ran this car through a 100-point certification process. It's certified. And because we ran that certification process, we're going to give you a four-year warranty on this used car because we know it's good. Well, now you can price it accordingly, and you, you, you know more about what you're going to get. Um, so that's the essence of information asymmetry and applying that to the programmatic supply chain. It's very important because there's, there is, for, I think there's some advertisers out there, brand marketers, you know, individual decision makers who might have this concept in their head when they look at the supply chain and they say, okay, advertiser, agency, DSP, data, SSP, publisher, right? And they might say, well, the sell side is SSPs and publishers and the buy side is agencies and DSPs. No, they're all sellers. And how, how do we know that they're all sellers? Well, we know that from accounting because the, at the end of it all, the advertiser is basically has what's called an ad expense on their income statement. And they have an invoice that they pay and money goes out the door. And when that money goes out the door, everyone else in the supply chain recognizes revenue. That's how we know they're all selling something to the advertiser. Um, that's key to make that distinction. 
Um, because if you don't make that distinction, now you're in a natural arbitrage environment, right? If you think like someone is a buy side advocate, but they're actually selling you something, you're going to get arbitraged, right? Uh, so information asymmetry applied to the supply chain would be that everybody, the, the advertiser is the only buyer, everybody else is a seller. They are responsible for supplying information about the goods being sold in this, right? And I think media agencies could do a much better job, but again, they're not buy side advocates anymore. They're, they got to play both sides of the table, representing buy side and sell side, because that's how the agency model functions. The media agency model is that's what it is today. Um, good or bad. That's just the way it is. So I hope that helps your audience kind of understand a little bit, a little bit about information asymmetry and what it is and, 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 and how to, what you want to do as a buyer is you want to take it on your own and get as much information as you're possible, as possible to go make better decisions. And of course, if you're in a auction environment and you're bidding on something, you want very good or the best information possible before you bid. Right. And that, that information is competitive advantage as well, right? Like the more that you have, the better you're able to bid. How, do, how about on the, the publisher side? two parts of this question so i've always thought publishers they are quite removed from campaigns they don't necessarily know the objective of the advertiser they don't know if it's cpa is it a reach campaign are they trying to drive installs of an app etc yeah so how how much can they get from their buyers um and then the second to that is how much should be shared so like should the publisher tell everything to the buyer should the buyer tell everything to the publisher like how how do you sort of draw a, a well they're line? being disintermediated right by dsps and ssps i mean if, if an advertiser wanted you with its agency you can just go direct to the publisher ad server and you could do audience targeting all day long you mm. can skip both the ssp and the dsp and that becomes that actually becomes a really very real use case right now considering cookies are basically gone right right, right yeah so, I, I wrote, yeah i wrote an article about do you even need a dsp and I got a few DP from DSPs like messaging me and like, well, in lots of cases, you could should just go straight to a publisher. You don't just sit like old you don't school, need ad tag to ad tag. You don't need a DSP or an SSP anymore. They were built. The only reason they exist was because of audience targeting and audience targeting was done with third-party cookies and they created this sort of intermediate mechanism within the auction to make that happen. But now if there are no cookies and if the if the audience targeting data has moved to the edges, meaning seller audiences and buyer audiences, then why do I even need either one? I don't. I mean, this is the smartest play in ad tech right now. Now, obviously, there's a lot of vested interest in the middle because a lot of these companies are public and they built a system off of something that doesn't exist as a foundation anymore, right? Um, I don't, I'm not so sure how much investors out there in some of these public companies recognize that, but the smartest move by far is if you want to do, what is the advertising job to be done right now? What do buyers want, advertisers? They want to do audience targeting. Now, did it ever really work really well with third-party cookies? If you really look into it, no, it didn't work really well. And there's plenty of research on this. But it's an ecosystem of where perception is reality. Now that cookies are gone away, it's like a reset. You're probably going to be able to do better audience targeting in the future that's actually privacy safe than with third-party cookies just because third-party cookies were never really that good and never fit for purpose, right? That so now it's like, hey, I'll just why don't I just go direct to the top 100 publishers in any given country market 
skip over everybody, create tons of surplus value where the publisher is getting way more working media and I'm getting way better QCPMs, like quality CPMs, right? For my money. And I'm going to have a better advertising outcome for sure. Now I know that SSPs and DSPs won't like that, but that's irrelevant. What's relevant is how do you get the advertising job done in an audience targeting world today without cookies? And if it doesn't, if it doesn't involve them, it doesn't involve them. That's just the way it is. Right, right. I think there's um, well, there is an argument for the scale piece that a DSP and SSP provides, where you can access, you know, thousands of publishers. Well, forty four thousand if you want. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and you could put one dollar in or ten dollars. We're going like oh, a hundred thousand. We're going direct. Has some limitations. And then also, actually, back to the information asymmetry point. Um if the seller is in control of all the targeting and optimization and pacing of campaigns, do you really trust that they're doing it in your best interest or are they doing it because, ah, oh, they had some empty ad slots and you've all of a sudden filled those. Like there's a, it's, I find the balance between demand and supply, like the optimization and the campaign goals and then yield and fill, how they sort of yeah. meet in the middle. It, it, it's such an interesting dynamic. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, if you run attention metrics and you look at those studies, you kind of find out the obvious, which is, well, buy big ad units on the best sites. How, and how much of that inventory is out there, right? Go do that first because where, where programmatic kind of came in originally was almost like an ad network with remnant or unsold inventory. But once that was going on, really to drive retargeting, all of a sudden, you could be any, you could supply all this, you could supply tons of synthetic inventory into exchanges because that became the thing somehow that was supposedly demanded by advertisers. So yeah, and then look, on the publisher side, I think the biggest problem publishers have from a financial strategy perspective is I don't know when they forgot like sort of the golden rule of economics that you don't maximize revenues. You optimize revenues to maximize profits. What's the optimal level of revenue to maximize profits? Because that's the whole objective. And I think this pursuit of maximizing revenue has caused them a lot of harm. And of course, built in that is relationships that they've built up maybe on not the best premises around letting folks into their ad server or in and around their ad server, et cetera. And then basically becoming addicted to it. Yeah. And I also think the sort of these more quality type publishers, they are competing, you know, on a level playing field with MFA, you know, they say they sort of like, well, can't beat them join an almost approach, right? Like you look at some of the top publishers from yesteryear, some of their experiences are terrible because they have to sort of have some low price imagery in the mix to meet demand. It's like the yeah. the solution to some of the recommendations in the ANA report isn't just the advertisers, isn't just the sellers. It's like it's it's everyone has to come together to to meet equilibrium where it's win win. Yeah. Um, and there's, I think there, I mean, there's so, there's a lot of efforts out there around this. I mean, you know, for example, the I-beans, their standards and, and, and their voting members, um, it just doesn't seem to be getting to where it needs to get to yeah. where I would call it a legitimate market for the purpose of getting the advertising job done. Right. Right. You know, yeah. um, 
because that's the ultimate thing is that's what everybody's supposed to be doing is doing advertising. You're not supposed to be just be. So in other words, there's a really big giant difference between doing advertising and spending a media budget because you could spend media budget and get no advertising out of it. Focus on what are you doing to get the advertising job done, not the media spending job done. But if an ecosystem has been built to do just that, to spend media budget, then you're going to get what you're going to get. And look, you know, advertisers and the marketers and the decision makers that work there, they're ultimately accountable and responsible for this. And they know it. Um, but look, mm -hmm. I remember being at a large brand, a large CPG, this is like four or five years ago, and um, very large company at, uh, in, in the alcohol packaged goods business. And in, in their wine, you know, very big owner of a lot of wine brands. And them saying that, look, a brand manager for a large, you know, wine brand spends 85% of their time on the, it's on the creative side, which it encapsulates the pro actual production of the wine, meaning they're in the vineyards. They're at, they're at, they're at the, um, they're in the vineyards. They're at the plant. They, they're trying to understand how the wine is made because you're, there's some creative process that's going on there to explain the product to consumers from the creative perspective. Very little of their time is spent on the media side of it. And so what do they do? They have a media agency to go do it because they're very involved in the creative production side, the product part of it. Uh, so if no one's keeping an eye on it and media budgets are giant, then you know, things can go wrong and you could get bad advice or take bad advice, right? Right, right. And I think, I mean, that was my uh, next question was, some of these advertisers will, will be reading this report. Some will be concerned. Some others will, will lean in a bit more. And rather than sort of just w waiting for the follow-up in October or w whenever it comes out with the ANA, what could they be doing in the meantime? I mean, obviously, apart from sending you or I a LinkedIn message, but like, you know, like yeah. what, sort of, what sort of steps <laughs> could you take? Yeah, so I think the very first thing, and I think and this was all listed out in the report, is you should lean in if you want transparency and the, and the, it's not, it's beyond transparency. It's, it's the actual advertising use cases from getting your log data. It's not that hard. There's plenty of different third parties out there that can do it for you. For example, um, there's tag Trustnet. there's the price waterhouse. You know, they have their piece. Uh, they have their technology. There's others out there. There are consultants who can just do it for you um, uh, on Amazon. That's a little more complicated to do it yourself. Like, you know, AWS, Redshift, and there's, you need some data scientist talent on that. It's better to outsource it to experts who already have a business. They're building a business around this um, because they know the paperwork, they can move faster, um, et cetera. That I think is fundamental. Two, um, inclusion lists, right? And I love yeah. the way that Lou Pascales puts this. It, you know, he's like, look, it's like going out to a beach and saying, okay, which grains of sand am I going to exclude? Yeah, <laughs> there's too many yeah. sites out there that are that are you know have really terrible inventory pumped into these exchanges. So, <clears throat> an inclusion list is the only way to go. Um, and and I can tell you that, look, when I was at Christio and running um, the publisher marketplace team, we knew we knew that we could find 95 percent of audiences on like say in the uk we could first the first thing we would do is we'd want to be in at least 35 out of the top 50 of the comp sport top 50 
right? That was a pre-bid integration, but kind of forget about that little technicality there because it's still just access to inventory. And then after those 35, we would go out and get like, say in the UK, it'd be maybe another 100, 150 sites. And we could find 95% plus of all audiences right there. In the US, you're looking at the Comscore top 50 and maybe three, 400 sites. Who cares about the other 5%? It's all diminishing returns. That's where all your pain comes from. That's where all your headaches are coming from. That's So that's what I would do, inclusion list. Now, if you talked today, if you, uh, here's a great test for all the, any marketer who's listening to this. You might think you're running an inclusion strategy because that's what you've been told. But if you go dig into it, you may find out you're running an exclusion strategy. Your agency is running an exclusion strategy, right? You find this all the time. That's the very first thing you have to stop. You have to run an inclusion list. And then you've got to test and verify constantly your inclusion list against the log data to make sure that it's running true, which is not that hard to do. You take log data, you take ads.txt, sellers.json, you marry these things up and, and you're good to go. You could even use, if you wanted to, I think one of the good things about TAG is that they do run a Dun & Bradstreet check against these companies, which I think is useful, that database to a certain extent, but you're triangulating between four data sets, log data, ads.txt, sellers.json, and TAG Dun & Bradstreet check. And you, you're seeing, am I really, am, I only wanna be running on a thousand sites. Well, am yeah. I doing that, you know? And if you do that, things are going to be a lot better and you're going to get way better ad results as well. Yeah, and that and that solution is not unreachable, particularly for no. the larger brands. Like you can lean into that today. Um, Tom, this has been a great discussion. They could, so wait, by the way, yeah, a little plug for you. They could hire someone like your firm. You sure. could outsource. You could outsource to a business process process outsourcing to have a small team, very inexpensive, in various parts of the world, right? That could actually be doing that type of work um, for a very, you know, for a really, really high value type of uh, of a project, right? That's ongoing, and that's just something for everyone to consider. But yeah, I know we got to cut it off here soon, but I'm, I'm I, we can go on for a while. I'm sure you and I. Yeah, I yeah, I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, thanks for the plug, uh, TPA hashtag digital dot com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, one final question: um, In this series, we're sort of focusing on transformation and programmatic supply. Is one of those things that's transforming. We hope, in theory, going forward, next eighteen months. Like, what what sort of big things do you think are going to happen in the programmatic supply chain? Well, obviously. Google's announcement, um, you know, and in, in the end of cookies. And let's see how those tests roll out with Privacy Sandbox. And do, will, will publishers default to the choice of least regret and say, look, I'm already running, I'm already, I'm already running Google's ad server and I might as well take the choice of least regret. And that's the way we're going to be doing audience targeting going forward because it's got scale. It makes sense. It's privacy compliant. It's got everything is everything's in it that makes sense. As far as I can tell, that's a pretty big one. And probably the biggest thing. Right. Well, yeah. Tom, as you said, you and I could literally talk for hours on this topic. Yeah. And uh, I really appreciate all the insight you provided your own perspectives and also some of the findings from the NA report. I'm sure people listening would have also really appreciated it. If they want to find out more about you and your work, where can they find out more? 
Yes. So uh, for my newsletter, you can go to triscary.substack.com. That's my newsletter. It's Povadis is the name of the newsletter. You can subscribe to that. Um, you can also support my crowdfunding um, goal for my musical, Programmatic the Musical. And there is a post on my, on my, on my newsletter about that. Uh, that, would be, that would be great. And any other general information, it's at lemonadeprojects.com uh, or you know, just DM me on LinkedIn if you want to reach out. A uh, variety of ways to, to, to find me. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Wayne. Appreciate it.